calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to another episode of Take 15. I am Lauren Foster, Content Director with CFA Institute. On today's show, we'll get an insider's view on the Federal Reserve and hear about global economic trends. My guest is Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence, a research and analytics firm. She's also a columnist for Bloomberg View and author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. Welcome, Danielle. Thanks so much for being here today. Delighted. So the Federal Reserve can be a really dry topic, mm. but uh, one reviewer commented that your book makes it anything but. You laid out some prescriptions in the book, and how has the Fed changed, if at all, since you wrote Fed Up? The Fed has not changed at all. It's, uh, it, unfortunately, there was a moment in time when Jay Powell first uh, assumed the, the chair position, and we saw some of his initial reactions to quadruple digit declines in the stock market. He said nothing. Um, his first testimonies to, to Congress. He, he was very much uh, of, of the position that it wasn't the Fed's job to backstop the financial markets. So uh, made investors very jittery, but it looked as if we had a true change agent um, at the Federal Reserve, the first non-PhD in economics since Paul Volcker ran the Fed. So it, it appeared that that was going to be a, a new day at the Fed, that Powell was going to be, um, again, a change agent. That didn't happen because of what happened, what took place in the credit markets in late 2018. And his, his hand was basically forced to, uh, to go back over with the doves. And so we've seen no change. So no change at all, but you laid out some prescriptions in your book. So if they had read your book, what would they be changing? Well, uh, at least Powell did the first uh, thing. One, one of my first prescriptions was why waste people's time and taxpayers' money and have four lame, lame duck Federal Open Market Committee meetings per year. If, they, if they're not followed by a press conference, then you can't take action. And uh, so, But now he implemented press conferences following all eight meetings, and now we have the possibility of monetary policy being changed at any moment. So I think that that's definitely uh, one of the better things that's happened uh, that, that I did suggest in the book. We've not redrawn the lines of the Federal Reserve districts. So you still have, uh, the biggest example that you have is, is out on the West Coast. You still have one San Francisco Fed that is regulating an extraordinary chunk of the United States and the financial system out West because that's how it was designed in 1913. You've got three or four Federal Reserves in the middle of the country, whereas you could really roll them up into Chicago and be done with it uh, because the economy since 1913 has changed. And I think the regulatory framework of the Federal Reserve to be efficient and effective also needs to undergo change. But that certainly hasn't happened. And we haven't gotten, uh, gotten rid of all of the, P of the PhDs or at least a good chunk of them and brought in more practical people who are 
on the receiving end of interest rate policy. None of these changes ha have taken place, I think, to the detriment of, of the global economy as we sit uh, at the precipice of talking about more negative interest rates and possibly going back to the zero bound here in the United States. So a big question these days is who's in control of the Fed? Is it Powell? Is it Trump? Is it the banks, the dollar, anyone? Well, I think the dollar has always been a, a silent uh, partner with the Fed, even though it's technically not in the Fed's purview to have dollar discussions. But that certainly changed after December 2015 when we had the first rate hike rollout. Excuse me, that changed in August of 2015 when the Chinese had the surprise devaluation of the yuan, which took the, the, the value of the yuan down 3% in three back-to-back -back moves. From that moment on, because the financial system can be so affected by other currencies, the dollar has become a big topic of discussion uh, at the Fed. I don't think Trump controls it, and I don't think that Trump is happy that he cannot control the Fed, but I don't believe that politics enters into Jay Powell's thinking. I do, however, think that the banking system remains a tremendous influence and holds a lot of sway on policy making um, to answer your question about the banking system. So, Really interesting. So let's step back a little bit and talk about the macro risks and headwinds to the global economic growth. What do you see out there? Well, it's, it's problematic that the trade war has begun to take true casualties in, in the form first and most importantly in the country of, of Germany, which had its supply chain and exporting ties so closely uh, to that of, of China. So we see Germany as being in a recession. Probably you can make the same statement about Singapore, South Korea, Japan. And again, it's a reflection of what's happened with the trade war, and it's also a reflection of the fact that the Chinese economy has kind of grown up. You can't reurbanize millions and millions of people. You can't do that twice. So the, the detrimental effect it's having on the global automobile industry is tremendous after a 20-year run that was barely interrupted by the financial crisis. But you can only sell so many cars, especially as the world converts to electric vehicles. So that is taking down. That's why we're seeing auto job losses here in the United States and production cuts. And, and it's why Germany and, and other countries are, are sliding into recession. So um, it's, it's, the idea is that the United States economy can stay decoupled indefinitely. But a lot of indicators from transportation, manufacturing, industrials, even in, in high tech, uh, suggest otherwise, in addition to what CEOs and CFOs have been reporting in the second quarter earnings season. So what data do you watch most closely as, as signals for the direction of the economy? And there's so much data that's out there, so how do you differentiate between what's relevant and what really is just noise? Well, I think the most important thing to bear in mind when it comes to data is you can't be married to any one indicator. You never know what data is going to pop up and be relevant. But if you follow trends, then I think that that gives you a much better feel for where the economy is headed because there is so much noise. We follow uh, a transportation index very closely called the, the CAS Freight Index. It's been down seven months in a row year over year. We follow layoff data very closely because it gives you a feel for what corporations are doing to manage their cost structures. Layoffs are up 11 months year over year. Um, we, we try and stay in the weeds because in a world where jobless claims are estimated to be 20% underreported, 
because of the rise of the gig economy and Uber drivers and the self-employed who are not going to claim unemployment insurance if they fire themselves. It just doesn't work that way. But because of how the labor market has evolved in a consumption-driven economy, we tend to stay in the, in the weeds and look at second and third tier economic data to get a feel for where the true economy is headed. Mm -hmm. What's your outlook on the U.S. dollar and other hard currencies uh, in the short term and perhaps the longer term? And do you think the dollar will ever be replaced as a key reserve currency? Well, so these are wonderful questions. Um, I don't think that the reserve currency status is at risk at the moment. And I think that that has something to do with China's debt to GDP being over 300 percent. So they've got to clean up their own financial system before the Chinese currency can, can really take, assume the position of being a competitor against the dollar. And um, even with the Federal Reserve embarking upon an easing campaign, it, which would suggest that there be dollar weakness, because easing here is going to, and we know easing here is going to trigger easing in Japan, further easing in Europe the dollar will remain on a relative basis the safe haven flow and the recipient of people trying to find yield wherever they can in a, in, in a safe fashion. So intuitively you would think that there would be dollar weakness, but Quill Intelligence call at the beginning of the year was that we would see the yield on the 10-year breach 2%, but at the same time we would have strength in the dollar. So we're going to cross over to the pond right now, and the EU and Japan's negative interest rate policy has lasted much longer than expected. Mm. What are the long-run implications and perhaps the unintended consequences of persistently negative or zero interest rates? Well, I think that demographics come into play when you ask these questions because pension funds have struggled, as have insurers, uh, with these policies. It's simply impossible. To, uh, to get a break, you, you see the European stock, um, European bank stock index down over 80%, for example. Same situation with Japanese banks. These are untenable operating environments for a lot of the players in the financial system, and yet here we discuss going from negative 0.4 to possibly negative 0.6, maybe or maybe not, before Lagarde has assumed power at the ECB, and the Bank of Japan continues to insist that it's going to continue easing as long as it cannot hit its inflation target of 2% when it's never even hit the one. So it's, it's, a, it's an unusual, unusual world of negative interest rates, and it, but it doesn't seem like we're pulling back anytime soon. Do you think the U.S. could at some point uh, see negative interest rates? Well, I think it matters how the, how the next recession plays out mm -hmm. and in what form we discover systemic risk. Uh, I, I think it will be a matter of circumstance. There's certainly been um, many academic papers that have been written that suggest that, that we could have negative interest rates here in the United States. I don't think it would be as elegant to implement because, it would, because our banking lobby is as strong as it is mm -hmm. here in the United States. There would be a lot of players who would, would be uh, very much opposed to negative interest rates but you, you just can't, you can't tell. There's no way that politicians would not advocate for negative interest rates if the economy is bad enough. And that's the bottom line with the U.S. Congress, is that they'll vote anything. And we could be the Swiss National Bank buying equities before we know it if the, if the recession was to be deep enough here in the United States. So you mentioned demographics a little bit earlier. In mm -hmm. 2016, there were 71 million millennials in the U.S. And you wrote a research paper recently or 
Uh, can millennials grow the U.S. economy? Right. So can they? They're going to need some debt relief if they're going to grow the U.S. economy. And we've got, what, over $22 trillion of debt and to listen to the politicians. And by the way, I think it, it becomes a bipartisan effort ahead of the 2020 elections. So if you can relieve this $1.6 trillion of student debt that is holding back the millennials, then you could definitely see some economic benefits come out of that. I, I mean, the moral hazard issue is just tremendous. But again, we have millions upon millions of millennials who put off settling down, put off marriage. Now they're, they're going to be living in a smaller physical housing um, unit forever. Uh, and they're not going to, they're not going to procreate. They, the, the, the birth rate in this country has plummeted. And so the economic ramifications of the millennials not being able to come of age financially, they're tremendous. And we're going to have to unleash their buying power somehow, even though I would be no advocate personally for relieving all the student debt. If I put it out on my Twitter feed, the minute I put it out there, people are saying, well, fine, then give me back my money. I paid my loans off in full. That's why it's kind of a Pandora's box. But again, there's no denying that in 2020, millennials will be the largest generation in America, something has to be done mm -hmm. to allow them to, to economically um, contribute to this economy. So a uh, final question, this is borrowed from Peter Thiel in his book, uh, Zero to One. Uh, what do you believe that most people you know disagree with? So I think that, that politics right now uh, is, is what has divided families, divided communities. Um, the whole idea of socialism coming to the United States is something that incites so much divisiveness and anger. Uh, the whole uh, modern monetary theory uh, crowd that says we just need to print our way. If, if there's never going to be inflation, then we can just print money for every social program in the world and pay people to not work. And I think that this theory gets under people's skin more than anything else and, and will be a, a very dividing subject going into this next election. But again, millennials outnumber baby boomers in the election year for the very first time. So we could definitely see you know, the closest thing to class warfare in this country that we've seen in generations because the economics right now are so dividing. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us and thank you to everyone watching or if you're accessing this content as a podcast, thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, and if you like the podcast, leave a review or a rating. It helps others find the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts, and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax accounting, or legal advice, please consult a professional. I am Lauren Foster. Thanks so much for listening.